Y'all give me a second to set up here. It's kind of like uh, getting in somebody else's car, you know? Yeah. Just the mirrors and the seats and get things situated here. All right. Well, we will be in Mark chapter 5 this morning. We're continuing in this series in Mark, and we've talked already about how Jesus has brought the kingdom of God. He is performing miracles just like the expected Messiah was, was prophesied in the Old Testament that he, that he would. Jesus is delivering on these Old Testament promises. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. He's even forgiving sins. And the word's getting out. The Redeemer has come. We talked early on in the series about how the gospel marks kind of like an action movie version of the gospels, right? Matthew's gospel is kind of like the history channel. Luke's is more of a drama and Marx is like this action-packed, snapshot, fast-paced, highlight reel version of Jesus' life and ministry. And so now the tension's rising. People have taken notice of Jesus. The word's out. He's caused a little bit of a ruckus here and there. He and his disciples just got booted from a region where he cast out a couple thousand demons. We just looked at that last week. Naked guy with supernatural strengths running around freaking everybody out. A bunch of pigs drown. Okay? That's why you need to come to church. You miss stuff like this. <laughs> this morning, we pick up where we left off. They left that region because Jesus was asked by the people there, please go. And now he comes back and he gets asked, please come. Let's read together Mark chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 21 through 43. Now hear the word of the one true and living God. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him, and was thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James, 
They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they immediately were overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. If you would pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that it instructs us, that it gives us hope. Lord, I pray that that would be the case now, that your word, not mine, would go out to your people, that it would give hope, that it would find people with various hurts that need healing that people would find encouragement in, in your words, Lord. You must increase and I must decrease. So Lord, I pray that this would be your word and not mine this morning, that your hearers would hear and be changed by the power of your spirit. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You remember when you were a kid, and maybe you misplaced one of your toys, you couldn't find it, so you go to mom or dad, and you, you ask them where it is, right? This happens a lot at our house. Daddy, where's my yellow race car? I don't know, buddy. You know, I, I wasn't playing with it. But, you know, keep looking around. I'm sure it'll pop up somewhere. I, mean, I, try, not, I try not to say what I remember my parents and grandparents telling me. We've all got plenty of those, right? Things you swore you would never say as a parent. Because I said so. Remember that one? Don't say can't. Can't never did anything. But you know the one that really, really got to me is, you know, inevitably I would have lost some toy. I would come to my parents and ask if they knew where it was. And they would say, well, you know, it's always the last place you look. I'm like, well, yeah, it's always the last place. I mean, I wouldn't keep looking for it, right, once I found it. That's really not very helpful at all. Now, if I had a way to make the last place I'd look the first place I'd look, then we'd really have something, wouldn't we? In this passage, Jesus is the last place Jairus and the bleeding woman look, and the only place they find what they're looking for. They've looked elsewhere. All other powers have failed, and in their hopelessness and in their desperation, when they have no place left to turn, their thought is, but Jesus. And that's been kind of a recurring theme here recently in the past like 36 to 48 hours of Jesus' ministry, right? Nobody could calm the storm but Jesus. Nobody could heal the demon-possessed man but Jesus. No one could heal this woman of her bleeding but Jesus. 
and no one can bring this man's little girl back to life but Jesus. And therein lies our lesson this morning. Jesus is the last place we look, but the only place we find life. Jesus is often the last place we look because we don't know what we're looking for. We spend our time trying to escape death rather than finding life. We think the secret to life is cheating death. We'll do anything to protect ourselves from becoming desperate. Our highest aim is independence and self-sufficiency. We'll do anything to not need. Our goal in life is to never need anything because when nothing is left, all that's left is God. And in the, the darkest parts of our hearts and in the cloudiest corners of our minds, we whisper, that's not enough. We know we shouldn't think that way, but we do. We know God loves and cares for his people, that he keeps his promises. But the lie our first parents heard in Eden rings in our ears. Has God really said? When we doubt what God has said, we doubt God's word. And when we doubt God's word, we doubt God's character. And when we doubt God's character, we doubt God's ability. And when we doubt God's ability, we make ourselves God's. We think we can take matters into our own hands. Do you see the foolishness of sin? Do you see how easily your heart can be deceived? Y'all, I have to confess, there have been times in my life when I've viewed God as not much more than like a gap insurance policy. And one I was even reluctant to use. Even when I needed him, I hesitated to file a claim. My sinful, prideful, self-reliant spirit has run out to the end of its tether more times than I can count. And when the slack runs out and snaps you back, it hurts. But you know what's crazy? It's been good for me. I can't give you that with words. I could tell you stories. It won't, it won't matter. You have to experience it. You can't know God will catch you when you fall until you fall into his hands. And your pride won't let you bring yourself to do it. So sometimes you need a little push, and that push feels like desperation. But desperation brings restoration, something that makes you cry uncle, that makes you whimper, help me. Desperation brings restoration. You've heard people say before, you know, God will never give you anything more than you can handle. Y'all, that's not true. This bleeding is more than this woman could handle. Jairus' daughter dying was more than he could handle. If they could handle it themselves, they wouldn't need Jesus, and he is precisely what they need. This desperation brings restoration. That's what Jairus needed, and so God gave it to him. That's what the bleeding woman needed, and so God gave it to her. And both of them found grace in a hopeless place. And they found it in the last place they thought to look. Jesus is often the last place we look because the nature of sin makes death and unbelief normative. Makes it seem normal. Death, and natu death is natural, we think. And, and, and belief is weird. That's what fallen man believes. You know, consider for a minute, what is the fall not 
affected? What has sin entering the world not corrupted? Sin brought not only death, but unbelief. Even our reasoning is defective. That's how philosophers over the ages have come up with such notions as man is the measure of all things. And tabula rasa, that we're born blank slates. No, we're not. We're born rebels with not only our backs turned toward God, but our fists raised in the air against him. That's who we are deep down, from the cradle to the grave. And that grave part's really what gets us. Especially when it opens its mouth to receive a child-sized casket like Jairus' daughter's. We know it's inevitable, though. Death is an uninvited guest that always shows up unannounced, but that we're all expecting at any moment now. Our problem is we hate death more than we hate sin, though. Sin is the culprit, and it makes us believe that death is just a part of life. No, it's not. Death and disease is unnatural. It was never supposed to be that way. That's why before you know how this story ends, you feel sad. Because somewhere deep inside, you feel like this little girl should have been able to go on forever. Or at the very least, that parents should never have to bury their own babies. And when it happens, it should jolt us and wake us up to the desperate condition that we're all in. We need a savior. The cosmic order is broken and needs to be fixed. But our unbelief runs too deep. So both death and unbelief become normative. We think this life is all we have, and that kind of hopelessness makes us bestial. It's less than human. We say we're not here for a long time, so we must be here for a good time, right? We say live life to the fullest, meaning get as much as you can in this life while you can because it's all you've got and you can't take it with you. That's the thinking of today. We're all going to die someday, so we might as enjoy life as long as it lasts. That, that's, the, that's the script. But that's not normative. God determines what is normative. He is norma, normans, non-normata. He is himself the norming norm that is not itself normed. And what is normative is that what God builds lasts for all eternity. And that death that you think is a, is a dead end is really just the corner you turn onto the next street that either leads into a place of eternal suffering where you pray for a death more permanent or one that leads you home and back to normal. Where every day is better than the last. But sin brought suffering and death into the world. Sin is the problem. Death is merely the result. And even that was swallowed up in victory on the cross and rendered impotent when Jesus rose again on the third day. The point I'm trying to make is cheating death is not the goal. Killing sin is. Treating symptoms is not a cure. You can't cure lung cancer with cough syrup. The cancer has to die, and when Christ saves a person, the prognosis is guaranteed. You will have eternal life, but the treatments continue until you get there. And he treats you 
by the power of his spirit, with the word, with the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and through prayer. These are the primary means he uses to make you well. But it's the last place you look. Because we're looking for the wrong thing. We don't know what we're supposed to be looking for because the thing we're supposed to be looking for is the very thing that we're trying to escape, our need for a Savior. We don't like lacking. But that awareness of our lack, that desperation Jairus and this woman both felt, bring complete and satisfying restoration. The bleeding woman in verses 25 through 26 is said to have been bleeding for 12 years and had already spent all she had. She'd been to every doctor, she'd seen every specialist, she'd tried every experimental treatment, and she was worse off. The, the world had nothing to offer her, and it had taken everything that she had. So she is now both broke and bleeding. Not only was she desperately ill, she was desperately lonely. Now, how do I know that? Where's that in the text? Well, this is a point where I might encourage you and remind you it's very good to read the Bible in context, right? As a, as a whole book, we have, to, we have to look back at everybody's favorite book, Leviticus, right? Real page turner. To get some context for what's going on here, why I could say that this woman was lonely. Here's the deal, okay? Now, before I describe this, I want to remind you, this is God's law, all right? So don't don't read this. We're not, I'm going to explain it to you. You don't have to turn there. But don't look at this with like a postmodern lens. It's important to recognize this is God's law and what he's always communicating to his people throughout redemptive history. And what we mean when we say that is God's unfolding plan throughout human history to redeem a people to himself. Okay? When we look at this, this sort of timeline and how he's worked... He's communicating to his people, I'm holy and you are not. You can't come up to me. You need a mediator. Okay? And that's what they had during this time as a priest who would, would tell somebody if they were clean or unclean. And so this woman's issue of blood, this period of menstruation, made her unclean. It made her impure, and it was for the period of time that that lasts, seven days, and then she would be pronounced clean by a priest. She would be able to come and worship the Lord again. But during that period of time, anything she touched was unclean. Anyone who touched her was unclean. Now, we could look at Leviticus and find some balance there in chapter 15 of all the other ways people could come unclean. But this is this lady's problem. Now, here's the problem. This is first century Judaism. All right? And we already know the scribes and the Pharisees piled on stuff on top of the law as it stood. And so it made life miserable for this woman. She was deplorable. Okay? She would have been treated almost as if she had leprosy, that she was less than human. That's where we are. She was lonely. Twelve uninterrupted years of menstrual flow. Twelve uninterrupted years of mess. Twelve uninterrupted years of ostracism by her community. Twelve years of never being hugged or held or kissed. Twelve long uninterrupted years of wondering, what's wrong with me? Twelve years of never being touched and being forbidden to touch anyone else or anything that was anyone else's. 
She's had enough at this point. And then her desperation crawls through a crowd not caring who she touched, crawling through a crowd of people surrounding Jesus, hoping no one would recognize her or cause her any more pain. And she reaches out and says, if I can just touch even his garments, I'll be healed. She had the right idea. She felt her need so deeply and knew no one else could save her. She tried. They failed. But Jesus. Jesus is often the last place we look to because everyone is looking. Both Jairus and the woman reach a point where they both say, I don't care what it costs me. I'm all in. The fear of man prevents us from being all in. We want to come quietly and privately. We want to love Jesus and still be loved by the world. Like the mean girls in high school who, who hung out with you and played with you in the neighborhood, but when we were at school and the popular kids were around, she pretended you didn't exist because it was more important to her to impress them to be as, than to be associated with you. Jesus is often the last place we look because everyone is looking. Jesus says, though, you will not serve two masters. Having one foot in and one foot out means having both feet in hell because these matters of life and death are all or nothing. And this woman was all in. Jairus was all in. Consider what Jairus was giving up by coming to Jesus. Consider who was watching when he came and fell at Jesus' feet, it says there in verse 22. There's a great crowd standing around. This man was a leader in the Jewish synagogue. They don't fall at men's feet. But Jairus did, and he fell at Jesus' feet, whom the leaders of the synagogue strongly opposed. His fraternity of Pharisees saw him bow before this man, Jesus. No, no, Jairus, get up. You're better than this. Don't let these people see you bowing before this man. But he began to believe and couldn't deny there was something about Jesus. When it's life and death, when things get personal, Jairus believes. And when we come to Jesus, when we come, we come desperate and empty, knowing that there's nothing in ourselves that can save us. So that's where Jairus is. I mean, basically ends his career here. He just kissed his, his high position in society and the favor of people, kissed it goodbye. He asked Jesus for a miracle, affirming his identity. And everyone was looking. That's hard. It's hard to look at Jesus when everyone is looking. We're worried about what it might cost us. We're worried it might cost us our reputation at work. Our family might not get invited to the barbecue or the neighbor's Super Bowl party. Or you might begin to feel kind of pushed out to the edges in your, in your play date groups, moms, or even within a women's Bible study because you just take your religion a little too seriously. You want to go deeper than just the girl talk. It's hard to let people see you looking at Jesus. Look at the woman's public Confession and notice that it doesn't start off as public. What we see there is a, is a movement in verses 27 through 34 of, of faith that's concealed to a faith that's then revealed. She was hiding in the crowd, didn't want anyone 
to know her motives. And she knew if she could just touch even his clothes, she would be healed. She knew that Jesus was no ordinary man. And she knew that everything she needed, he had. And immediately she was healed, it says in verse 29. Everything she thought Jesus was, he was. And more. But notice Jesus doesn't let it in there, does he? He says, who touched my garments? He's not looking for information. He knows somebody touched him. He's aware of what's happened. And he starts to look around for the one who touched him. Imagine being the woman, right? And Jesus turns around, he starts scanning the crowd, and he's trying to find the one. He's trying to identify the one who just touched him. And he's looking around for that pair of eyes, and it's you. And so here she comes. This unclean, unlovable woman falls down before Jesus in fear and trembling and confesses the whole truth, it says in verse 33. And then Jesus takes this unclean, unlovable woman and before the crowd lifts her face and her hopes. And as the true high priest, all those laws pointed to pronounces her clean and restores her to her community. Not only healed, but completely restored. Everything that had been taken from her is now available. She is no longer to be remembered as unclean, no longer untouchable, no longer to be treated as an outcast and avoided. Go in peace, he says. And that's exactly what she did. Do you know she didn't have to clean up to come to Jesus? She came, and Jesus cleaned her up. That's what a true high priest can do and does for those who come to him in faith. Every other religion says, fix yourself so that you're deserving. Christianity is the only one that says, you're not deserving. And there's nothing you will ever do that will ever make you deserving. Jesus is deserving. And what is his can be yours if you trust in him. That's the gospel, y'all. That's good news. This woman had plenty of bad news. But Jesus making her go public with her healing wasn't just for her, it was for Jairus. The clock's ticking on Jairus' daughter. This little interruption, this delay, could be costly. But instead, it increases his faith. He thought Jesus could heal his daughter, and now he's seen that woman from town that's been unclean for 12 years. He just saw Jesus heal that woman. So now he's, he's filled with hope, right? But then look, before Jesus even gets done speaking in verse 34, some people from his family come and report the sad news that it's too late. Before Jesus can even finish his sentence, his daughter's dead now. Now that faith that initially brought him to his knees at Jesus' feet and that faith that's just been strengthened and increased and affirmed, confirmed, is being tested. But what does Jesus tell him? What does he say to him? This poor man's heart is about to implode. His whole world is crumbling down around him. His eyes are getting hot with tears, and grief is being poured over him like oil. And he hears Jesus say, do not be afraid. Only believe. 
Everyone else says, what's the point? It's too late now. Why trouble the teacher further? But they go to Jairus' house anyway. And Jesus says, don't cry. She's only sleeping. And they all laugh at him because she's dead. Jesus clears everyone out except for mom and dad and three of his disciples. Because it's hard to look to Jesus when everyone's looking. Now there's no distractions. And he says she's sleeping when she's really dead. Was Jesus kidding? Was he mistaken? No. Everywhere you look in the New Testament, if someone, someone has died, they've fallen asleep. And they're awaiting the resurrection. She's not dead dead. It's not permanent. She's waiting for Jesus. And he's here. Death and the giver of life in the same room together. And the one who created life with a word speaks and says, little girl, arise. And she lives again. Do you believe that? With a word, he created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And with a word, he brings the dead back to life. His word brings hearers back to life today. The conversion of sinners, your salvation, is no less a miracle than this. And that miracle happens today. It happens somewhere. If not here, somewhere. But why not here? Because Jesus is the last place you'd look for life, but he's the only place you'll find. And once you find him, you'll never have to look anywhere else. Suppose you have found him. I realize I'm talking to a lot of Christians this morning. There's application for you here, too, obviously. Distractions, societal pressures, trials, temptations, things that keep you from looking to Christ first— and going and seeking worldly wisdom until it fails. That's all there. But let's talk about your unbelief. Because your faith gets challenged too. Even when you know better. You, you believe in Jesus and trust in him for salvation. And you believe the story you've just heard. You believe that even though you yourself were once dead in your sins and trespasses, by grace God saved you. But do you see the world for what it is? Do you see all the smiling dead people around you, living empty lives, drinking coffee, reading the paper, mowing grass, watching Netflix, raising families right next door to you? Do you see a room with not just one dead child, but a world full of death and hopelessness which a life-giving Savior has stepped into? 2,000 years ago, he brought grace into a hopeless place. Despite all appearances and all the reports from your friends that say there's no point, it's too late, do you believe that with a word he can make the dead live again and that he can cause them to walk in newness of life? even the most hopeless of those among us. It's hard. Unbelief is easy. 
It's expected. And people are watching. You might believe it, but you sure don't want anyone to know you believe it. Do not be afraid, but believe. Isn't that what Jesus tells Jairus here when it was too late, when death had already won? <clears throat> Do not be afraid, but believe. What's impossible with God? What's impossible with God? His words bring its hearers back to life today. You can count on that. Jesus might be the last place you look, but he is the only place where life is found. It's true for you, and it's true for everyone you know. Do you want to help yourself and them? Your last resort should always be your first inclination. When you're lonely and depressed, nothing you do or try seems to help but Jesus. When you can't seem to hang on to all those things that make you feel safe and secure, and like things are going to be okay, but Jesus. When you're desperate because the world has failed once again to deliver on yet another promise, but Jesus. What if we could just start there? What if we woke up believing what he's told us, that his mercies are new every morning, that he clothes even the lilies of the field and feeds the sparrows, even though we're much more precious to him than they? That because Jesus came and died in the place of sinners, we are able to walk in newness of life if we believe in him. Start there. Rather than cheating death, look to the source of life and you'll find it. Let's pray. Dear gracious and heavenly Father, Despite all appearances, we know this world is being redeemed. We know that nothing is out of your control. We know that your arm is not so short that it cannot save. So, Lord, we pray that you would reach in, reach to those around us, embolden us to speak your truth, to share your word trusting that it is the means by which you call people to yourself, Lord. It's the way any of us have. It's the way that any of us have come to faith. Lord, I do pray for those who are hurting, those who have clouds over them that won't go away, those that have ailments that just are a mystery that can't be cured or ones that they know they just have to endure. Lord, we pray for healing, but ultimately, Lord, we pray for peace in the midst of all those things because we do recognize we're living in a fallen world. But Lord, we can't, we can't get through it. We can't walk through it without you by our side, holding our hand, walking before us, Lord, I pray that your people would know that comfort, that they would know your presence, that they would always see their need, that they would grow comfortable in their need, that you would be the first place they go, their first source of counsel, their first source of relief 
Lord, make it so. In Jesus' name, amen.